Amen. Would you turn in your copy of the scriptures to Revelation chapter 2? Revelation chapter 2, we look at verses 8 through 11 tonight. Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, Thus says the, one, the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander or the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, let's pray one last time, asking for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. In our natural state, we are unable to understand the spiritual reality that is laid forth for us in your word. Might you send your Holy Spirit to work in our eyes, to open them, to see wonderful things in your law. Give us faith to grasp them and an ability to obey what is written here. Bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The year was A.D. 155. A man in his mid-80s was arrested by the authorities. His crime, testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ and acknowledging him as Lord and not Caesar. For this he was arrested. The civil authorities tried to reason with him. They told him simply, renounce Christianity. Acknowledge Caesar as Lord And you'll go free. Don't you want to uh, escape such a horrific death at, at your age? What harm is there in saying Lord Caesar and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions? So make sure of safety. Swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. This man's reply... Eighty-six years have I served him, that is Christ, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Holding fast to this confession, his fate was sealed. He was burned at the stake, and as the story goes, that was not effective, and so a soldier had to take a dagger and pierce his heart. This is the account of uh, martyrdom of Polycarp, who was an early church leader of the church at Smyrna. Fast forward to the year 2016, Andrew Brunson was a pastor of Izmir Resurrection Church in Turkey. He was arrested in 2016 for charges of espionage and aiding terrorism. These were fabricated. These were not true at all. He was held in prison for two years, and and much political uh, maneuvering was done uh, to secure his uh, freedom after that time. The city Izmir, where he was a pastor, is the site of the ancient city of Smyrna. And I begin with these stories tonight because it shows us that Smyrna is and was a difficult city to be a Christian. The church that we meet tonight in Smyrna, along with the early church and even to the modern era of Izmir, Turkey, it's not an easy place to be a Christian. We meet tonight the persecuted church. And as we go through the letters of Revelation, this one might not connect with us as well, that we live in a society where there is general religious freedom. No one's 
losing their head, as, as far as I know, in America over uh, the cause of Christ. Uh, we do not have intense persecution like this church was experiencing. And so it might not relate to us as well. But Jesus uh, uh, is with his persecuted church. And we know from brothers and sisters uh, around the world, even some we have prayed for tonight, are facing such hostility similar to what the church at Smyrna was facing. And what a comfort this church uh, would have had that the Lord Jesus himself uh, comes and speaks a personal word to them in their persecution. That it shows us Jesus' compassion and care for his church, particularly his church that is persecuted and marginalized. And so as we come uh, to Revelation uh, 2.8 tonight, uh, we're, we're seeing Jesus' words to the persecuted church. Our outline is very similar uh, from last week with, with a few tweaks. So uh, number uh, one there, or Roman numeral run, one, the church addressed. Smyrna was a port city about 40 miles north of Ephesus. It was one of the largest cities in, in Asia. And, and, al- and, and although it doesn't play prominence in the New Testament, it did have prominence in, in Asia Minor. It was the supposed birthplace of Homer, and it was one of the most beautiful cities in Asia. It was known for its wealth, its beautiful uh, city and scenery. It had all the same pagan religious practices that, as we looked last week, that Ephesus would have had its local religions, its local deities, uh, its local cults. It would have also participated in the Roman imperial cult. The imperial cult was the state religion of the Roman Empire that had various sacrifices to emperors or the senate or or what have you. And Smyrna in particular was very loyal to Rome of all the cities in ancient uh, Asia Minor. In 193 B.C., so this is very early, Smyrna became the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple in honor of Dea Roma, the goddess Roma. So they were fiercely loyal to Rome. And and that may, as we'll see later on, play into a factor of why they are treating Christians so harshly. The church in Smyrna is only mentioned here in the New Testament. And so uh, all we know about this congregation is all that's in these uh, short few verses here. But we know uh, that it is a persecuted church. And as uh, the introduction noted, we know that the man Polycarp was associated with this early church. And it's even uh, suggested that maybe Polycarp was actually in this congregation as a part of the original recipients uh, of this uh, letter. And, And it's not outside the possibility. So that's the church addressed. The characteristic of Christ emphasized. As in every letter, there is a characteristic of Christ emphasized at the beginning here. In verse 8, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Remember that these, these oracles begin with, thus says, reminding us of the prophetic nature of this divine word of the Lord that is coming. Jesus emphasizes, I'm the first and the last. We discussed this in the vision at the end of chapter 1, that this is a reference to passages in Isaiah where God, Yahweh, refers to himself as the first and the last. Uh, that So Jesus, by calling himself the first and the last, is calling himself divine. That he is very God himself. And secondly, in these Isaiah passages, God is uh, asserting his supremacy over all the false gods around Israel. That all those gods, uh, people worship them and they boast that they are gods, but I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, I am the first and the last. I am God, and there is no other. Jesus is reminding this church in persecution that He is God. He is Lord. He's the one true living God who is in charge of all things. Secondly, He tells them, I, I died 
and I came to life. He's reminding of them of the essential mission of Christ. As one ancient commentator writes on this, He who came into the trial of death, that's Jesus, by death put death to death. Jesus by death put death to death. He's reminding this congregation, I faced similar threats in my, in my life. I had to face the horrific reality of death, and I died. But death did not conquer me. I conquered death. I came alive, and I am alive today. And we'll see that these are going to be very comforting truths to these churches, to this church. This is particularly comforting for those facing threats on their life. I'm going to die for Jesus, but Jesus says, remember, you're dying for the one who died and came to life. You're dying for the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. And he can resurrect you like he was resurrected himself. So that's the characteristic of Christ emphasized. Thirdly, the commendation given. We meet those words again in verse 9. I know Jesus walks among the lampstands of his churches. He's observing their behavior. He knows what's going on, both the good and the bad. Jesus says, I know. I know your tribulation. I know the affliction uh, that, that you are experiencing. We met this word, uh, affliction, before. We noted that it, it can be any trouble that comes to a person because of his being in Christ. That, that you will experience affliction if you are a Christian. And, and particularly this, this congregation was experiencing physical, external uh, affliction of persecution, of pressure. And Jesus says, I know your affliction. I know all the trouble and distress that you are experiencing because of my name. I know. And he gets more specific of of that affliction. I know your poverty. This wasn't a rich congregation materially. This one commentator notes the poverty of the Christians at Smyrna contrasts with the city's general prosperity. This was a wealthy city. This was a, a progressive city. This wasn't a third world country city. This was a modern city at the time. It had all of the advances. It had all of the centers of learning and, and medicine and, and all, all of that. But here are these group of Christians and they're poor Why are they poor? Likely, it's because they had problems keeping their job because of their refusal to participate in local pagan uh, uh, sacrifices or religion or even the imperial cult. As Greg Bill tells us, it was almost impossible to have a share in the city's public life without also having part in some aspect of the imperial cult, which would have made it very difficult to be a a Christian and any person of recognition in that city. That maybe in in some of the trades you you had to offer sacrifices to local uh, deities and the the Smyrnians would refuse to do that and that may have cost them their job. That, That people's employers may have found out their association with Christianity and as that took on less and less popularity in the city, uh, they may have been rejected. We don't actually know, but it's likely related to that. So they're, they're, they're impoverished. They have poverty. They're poor. And Jesus says, I know. I know your poverty. I know the struggle you are having for mere existence. I know the struggle it is to find a job or find enough income to, to feed yourself, to feed your families, to feed one another. I know your poverty. 
But, but in, a, in a side mark, and I, I think it's correctly in parentheses here, Jesus says, but you are rich. You may be physically impoverished, but you are spiritually rich. That there is more than one way to be rich, according to the scriptures. Obviously, materially. But you can be rich in faith. James 2, uh, 5 tells us, Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor materially in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God? So we can be rich in faith. Ephesians chapter 1 tell us, Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We can have the riches of God's grace in the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 7 of Ephesians, we're told that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That we, we can be rich with, the God's, with God's grace. Paul says that in his ministry, he is as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul was about making people rich. Rich towards God. Rich in the gospel and in faith. We can be rich in good works. Paul exhorts Timothy in in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, of the material rich, he says, tell them they are to do good, to be rich in good works. As opposed to be uh, rich toward yourself, investing in your own self, as the, the foolish man did in Jesus' parable, is building bigger barns to increase the storehouse of his wealth. And, and Luke comments, he is not rich towards God. So there is a kind of spiritual wealth that the scriptures uh, discuss. That you're rich in faith as you receive the riches of God's gospel in the grace of the gospel. And you're, you're then rich in good works of love towards one another. And so the church in, in, in Smyrna, they were not materially rich, but they were spiritually rich. Contrast that with another church we'll, we'll analyze, Laodicea, that that Jesus says, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I, am not, I need nothing. This church was materially rich, and they boasted about it. But Jesus' assessment of this church was, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You may be materially rich, but you are spiritually impoverished. So Jesus says, I I know your poverty, yet you are rich, and I commend you for your your spiritual wealth that you have acclaimed for yourself. He says, I know the slander or the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan, we get more details into what uh, their particular affliction was, and it seems that they had conflict with the Jews in the city. Judaism in the Roman Empire was a recognized religion. The Jews were not forced to worship Caesar as a god. They, they were allowed to offer instead sacrifices in honor of emperors and as rulers, but not as gods. That, that Judaism sort of got a pass in the Roman Empire for having to participate in the imperial cult. And you know, Christianity began within Judaism... And at first, it was very, uh, in terms of the Roman government, it was associated with Judaism. 
Do you remember when in Corinth, when Paul is brought uh, to the, the local uh, uh, leader, Gallio, there, and he hears this dispute, and he says, this, this, this is an inner squabble of your law. Uh, this has nothing to do with us. And so in his mind, Christianity, this was all an intersect of, of Judaism. But then as time went on, there, there, became, there began a, a separation. And the Jewish unbelief was such that they would clearly reject uh, Christianity to be seen as any umbrella of sort. And so what was likely happening here is that the Jews, outraged at the Christians, were going to the local uh, authorities and saying, they're not a part of us. They're not Jews at all. They're a new, uh, weird sect, religion, and they worship this Jesus, and they call him Lord and not Caesar. And so these Jews uh, would have brought slander uh, to the Christians there in Smyrna. But Jesus says these are not true Jews. Jesus says, these are a synagogue of Satan. That we know uh, from Romans, as we've looked at even recently, what is the true Jew? The true Jew is the one who has the circumcised heart. The the one who who has faith in God. Not the one who necessarily has Jewish DNA. So these Jews, which were likely ethnic Jews, were claiming to be the real Jews, which with that meant that you were claiming to be the real followers of God, the real fearers of Yahweh, of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. But Jesus says, you're actually a synagogue of Satan. You've rejected God's Messiah. I am the first and the last. Yahweh has appeared to you and you have rejected him, which makes you not a servant of God and his kingdom. You're actually a servant of Satan and his kingdom. So Jesus says in in their indictment of you as blasphemers, they themselves are actually the blasphemers. They have not bowed to the true and living God. And Jesus knows what it's like to be slandered by the Jews and put in an unfair trial. So He says, I know. I know the blasphemy of the, of, the, of the Jews who say they are the true Jews, but in reality, they're the synagogue of Satan. Jesus is unfolding reality for these persecuted church. When we get in a, a persecution, we can often distort reality. All our, our true understanding gets perverted and we ask all sorts of funky questions we never would have. Jesus is pulling back the curtains and reminding them, don't, don't let them, their blasphemy get to you. You're, you're the true Jew. They're not the real uh, followers of Yahweh. You are. So Jesus commends this congregation because they are, they're being faithful to him. They're still testifying, and they're suffering economic uh, and physical uh, ramifications for their allegiance to Christ, and he commends them. Jesus has no reproof for this congregation. Most letters are going to have something good and something bad to say. This letter, there's no reproof. And it's interesting that, that the two churches that have no reproof from Jesus are the churches in persecution. But Jesus does have something else to say to this congregation, which leads us to our next point, the coming trial foretold. That their suffering is not over. There is something else to come. You've already faced 
uh, some opposition, some intense opposition. But Jesus says in verse 10, Behold, the devil is about to, to throw some of you into prison. You will be tested for ten days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, Jesus uh, tells these uh, Christians that persecution, even more persecution, is coming. He says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Once again, Jesus is getting at reality. They don't visibly see Satan show up and throw them into, into prison. But likely, Satan, uh, through uh, the synagogue of Satan or other uh, people, are being used to bring accusations that's going to lead to the arrest of some of these Christians. And Jesus says, you're going to be tested This test, first and foremost, comes from Satan. He wants believers to renounce Christ. He wants to put the pressure on, and he wants to to have them uh, renounce their faith. That prison in the ancient world was a temporary holding place where you awaited your, your sentence of whether guilt or not and what your punishment was. So it's not like you spent years uh, per se, in prison as your sentence. So these, these would be put in prison, and they're awaiting their, their sentence, and if they are guilty, the sentence would be death. And Jesus says this testing will last for ten days, this tribulation. That could be real ten days. But as we said before, this is apocalyptic literature and, and, and numbers are used in, in a symbolic way. So what, what would the number 10 signify for us? Well, it's, it's a round number and it indicates a short period of time, a limited period of time. I think that's likely. It's not three and a half years that, that we see in other parts of Revelation. It's not a thousand years, ten days. It's not 24 hours, 10 days. Some like to see a reference here that, that, uh, to Daniel, where Daniel and his friends were tested for 10 days, that they only ate vegetables and water uh, to see instead of the king's food that was offered to uh, sacrifices. That could be likely, but I don't think we have any reason to know whether that's true or not. Nevertheless, for a short period of time, these, these, uh, some of these Christians were going to be put in tribu- uh, tribulation. That would be prison. And Jesus says, be faithful unto death, meaning that some were going to face execution. Jesus doesn't say, be faithful in those ten days and I'll get you out of prison. He says, be faithful even unto death. Which means some of you are going to have to make that decision. This shows us why Jesus has no reproof for this congregation. Things become very clear when you have to face a level of persecution like that. There's no pseudo-Christianity in Smyrna. And the reason is that following Christ was costly. When you start talking about dying for Christ, it gets very seriously serious quickly. There's no, well, I'll take this benefit of Christianity, but when it gets a little uncomfortable, I'm out. And if you face a death situation, you're either real or not. as a way of testing someone, proving they're, are they real stock. You, you can't be a half-hearted Christian amidst such persecution. So that's the, the coming trial foretold. The consolation for faithfulness, Roman numeral 5. What's Jesus' words? He told, he told them, you're gonna be, some of you are going to be thrown in prison, Some of you are going to have to face death. What's Jesus' words to them? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Don't fear anything that's about to happen. 
Don't fear being arrested. Don't fear your trial. Don't fear your ability to speak or defend yourself. Don't fear how the prison conditions will be. Don't fear your execution. Do not fear anything about what you are going to suffer. Why? Well, it goes back to how he addresses this church in the beginning of the letter. I am the first and the last. Don't fear them because I'm God. I'm in control of all of this. That Satan who is orchestrating this is one of my created beings. Don't fear because I died and came to life. The same reality that you were about to face, I faced. I faced slandering from the Jews that led me to be handed over to Roman authorities. I too was kept in custody and poorly treated. I too had an unfair trial. I too was condemned to death. I too faced a horrific reality of death. Yet I conquered. I came to life. Death did not have ultimate say over me. On the cross, I dealt with sin. And that was proven by my resurrection. And if you're aligned with me, you will be raised just as I was. So don't fear. I have the keys of death in Hades. I have you. If you're with me, you will be fine. Do not fear. Secondly, he says, be faithful. Be faithful unto death. What, what is faithfulness here? Or uh, as we'll see at the end of the letter, conquer this, this encouragement to conquer. It's faithfulness in this situation is holding fast to Christ. Do not give up your testimony for Christ. They tell you to renounce Christ. They tell you to diminish your allegiance to Him. Don't do that. Even if they are going to kill you, even if it's going to cost you your life, hold fast to Christ. Because what will you get? I will give you the crown of life. This, isn't, this is not a, a royal crown. This is a laurel wreath. wreath. It, it would have been given in athletic competitions that after someone uh, submits themselves to severe discipline and, 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 and wins in their athletic competitions, they, they got the wreath. It would have been given in military context for people who had, had great victories of, of celebration of all their, their accomplishment. If someone did great public service, they would have been given this laurel wreath. Jesus says, my wreath is not for athletic competition, it's not for military prowess, it's not for public service, it's for holding fast to my name, and my wreath doesn't disappear after a few weeks. My wreath is the wreath of life. It's the crown of life. It's the crown which is life. What's Jesus giving here? Eternal life. This is reiterated in verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Well, we meet the second death at the end of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Dead, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What's the second death? It's eternal punishment separated from life with God forever. As opposed to the saints who come to life and reign with Christ and live with Him forever. So Jesus says, in the midst of the persecution, if you hold fast to my name, I'll give you the crown of life. I will give you eternal life. 
In the Christian life, we have a sort of ironic overcoming. You mean if I give myself in death, I get life? Yes. As Greg Beale notes, the earthly defeat of death is heavenly victory in life. That you give yourself in death, which seems a defeat, but in reality is, it is a victory. Why? Because the most important thing is not whether you live physically through a trial or not. It doesn't matter whether you physically or die or not. What matters is, are you holding fast to Christ? Because in Christ, there is life. So if you have Christ, you have life, and if you're holding fast to Christ, and you have to face death, that is better because you still have, you still have life. To renounce Christ is to gain temporary physical life, but then to face uh, an eternal death, rather than to suffer a, a temporary a physical death to gain eternal life. Death brings life. This is the way of our Savior. His death brings life to us. This is why, why James can tell us to count it all joy when you meet trials of, of, of various kinds. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Which is a, a, a warning to us that only life is found in Christ. And that if you're here tonight and you do not uh, confess Jesus Christ as your Lord, you've not repented of your sin, you've not come to receive the forgiveness that He offers through His sacrifice in life, uh, you will not receive life after death, you will receive death after death. And that is an eternal death, separated from life with God. But in Christ's life, and as long as you are alive here, you have opportunity to repent and to believe, and you will be saved to repent and believe. So that's the consolation that Jesus offers. And finally here, the connection to our lives and church. As I noted in the beginning, maybe the trials of this church seem a little bit foreign to us. That I doubt any of us is, is going to, to face uh, an execution sentence for Christian faith this week. And so as we come to some applications, some of it is immediately relevant to our lives, but I think some of it is this, this letter is for us a, a storehouse of treasure that we must put in ourselves for future reference. That there may be a time where you or I or this church faces much more hostile persecution and it will be truths found in this letter that will bear us up in that time. It's sort of like premarital counseling. You get your marriage counseling before you get married rather than after, that it hopefully prepares you in some way uh, that you don't have to have as much post-marriage counseling, that you're told all the ins and outs of marriage and you store that up in your mind so that when, when you are married, uh, you, can, you can apply these biblical truths. So that's, that's what we're doing uh, in many ways with this uh, letter is we're storing up the truths for a time where we may face this kind of persecution. Four short uh, points of application. First, material wealth neither commends nor condemns a church. I think it's important from this to say a, a, a few points here. One is, is material wealth is not evil in and of itself. If someone is wealthy, if a church has uh, financial resources that 
that neither commends or condemns the church. It's, it's not a, a, a moral evil. But the second point is, uh, wealth brings with it a unique temptation to pride and self-trust. That the scriptures are, are filled with all sorts of warning about uh, wealth. That uh, if someone has wealth, they must... Be reminded of that. This is what Paul does in in the letter to to Timothy. That he tells, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. There's a temptation to, look what I got, I'll just trust in this. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You can trust, look, I'll trust my investments. I'll be secure. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainties of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So there's a unique temptation with wealth, which means that when a church or an individual possesses wealth, they must soberly, vigilantly, prayerfully ask God to help them to be faithful with that. It's not, a sign, it's not a sign of cursing from God. It is a blessing from God, but it brings a unique temptation. And the antidote to pride and self-trust is generosity. That's what Paul says to these. Uh, don't be haughty. Uh, don't, don't trust in your riches, but be rich in good works towards others. Be generous. So material wealth neither commends nor condemns a church. Secondly, Jesus is sovereign over our suffering. Jesus didn't stop this church from suffering greatly. He could have. He's God. He's the first and the last. That's what he said. But he tells them, look, the devil's going to come. He's going he's to test some of you. You're going to be thrown in prison. Some of you are going to have to face death. And Jesus could intervene at any moment and stop that suffering, stop that persecution, stop that poverty, and he doesn't. Why do some churches suffer greatly and others don't? Or, or you, you may look at others around you and say, why do I seem to get all the trials? Why do I, why do I seem to have the more difficult life than, than other people in the church? They seem to have it easy. Why do other people get the health and not me? Why do other people get to, to sit around at Christmas with all of their saved uh, children and have a wonderful time of fellowship and I'm in antagonistic, apologetic conflict or at least trying to keep uh, temperature down so there's no brawl over matters of faith? Why can't I have a Christian family? Why, why is my work so, so strong and other people just easily advance? You find yourself asking those questions in the midst of deep suffering. You, you must say with Job, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That Jesus in his sovereign goodness has laid out our suffering for each of our lives and our church. And he desires in our lives and for his purpose to work that for our good. The song we'll sing here at the end, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, it's written by George Matheson. Maybe you know the story behind this. In seminary, he, he started to become blind as a young man. And he was engaged to be married. And his fiancée, when she found out that he was going blind, said, I can't live with a blind man, and she, she left him. And so he was uh, 
His sister took care of him. He became a pastor. He became a very successful pastor. Uh, And then eventually he finds out uh, that his sister is going to get married, which means that she's going to leave him and and caring for him. And and, and that brings back all of the pain of his own uh, rejection of marriage in times past. And we're told that on the night uh, before uh, her marriage, he wrote that hymn, O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean's depth its flow may richer, fuller be. That's his way of saying what Job says. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Don't compare, don't complain, but be faithful. Be comforted that your suffering is not some randomized, ill-fortuned, cosmic accident, but under the sovereign control of your Heavenly Father. Be encouraged that Jesus isn't discouraged by our our, uh, suffering. Jesus doesn't look at this persecuted church and say, Ah, I'm just so discouraged. I just wish you guys lived in in a less hostile city. I'm so disappointed that you guys are thrown in jail and all of that. No, Jesus is sovereign over all of this and is going to use this to advance his name. So Jesus is not discouraged by persecution. He is sovereign over all of our suffering. Uh, Thirdly here, see, be unashamed of the gospel. It's really easy to be quietly ashamed of the gospel in our nation. Americans generally are comfortable not discussing religion. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are quite comfortable at times not discussing religion as well. And so if, if, if we're not, uh, if we're ashamed when a little bit of opposition might come against us for speaking the truth, that's, that's not a good sign of what would we do if the opposition was greater. So practice being unashamed of the gospel. But Paul says, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and Greek That the gospel is our nation's only hope. And the only way they can know this hope is if we open our mouths and tell them. I was listening to a a question-answer session to the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, and he was asking, how can we reach out? How can we uh, evangelize as a church, reach our communities? He said, you know, what can the church do to evangelize? Evangelize. It's real simple. We speak the gospel to to those around us, and we do it in a way that's unashamed of its message because it has their only hope of eternal life with God. So be unashamed of the gospel. Fourthly here, D, pray for the persecuted church. That we may not be in a situation like Smyrna, but we know very personally, in many ways, churches around the world that do face this reality. And we must pray for these brothers and sisters that they bear up, that they do not fear what they're about to suffer, that they are faithful even unto death if necessary because Jesus gives them the crown of life. So I'm thankful that we we do pray uh, in our prayer meeting often for for situations around the world. And and as you learn of, of, of these brothers and sisters suffering immensely, pray for the persecuted church. Andrew Brunson, who I I mentioned earlier in the sermon, who was arrested in Turkey as a pastor, Uh, after this two years of imprisonment and essentially solitary confinement, uh, 
Uh, he says that you know, God used that to really strengthen his faith. And, and he feels that you know, part of his uh, ministry now is to really prepare uh, Western Christians uh, of how to, to face uh, persecution. And so uh, we may face a time where we uh, receive more persecution, and it's letters like uh, these that will give us strength uh, and courage uh, to bear up for the name of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of the outcast. You are the the God of the poor and needy and marginalized. That we see an example of, of people who are, in society's eyes, the scum of the earth, but in your eyes, they're rich, they're beloved. We thank you for your care and compassion for your church in persecution. We do pray for our brothers and sisters. Lord, as, as we have come, and, and none of us had a fear of losing their job coming to pr- church this evening because of our attendance. None of us had a fear of being arrested and the police coming and confiscating our cell phones and disassembling our library and shutting down corporate worship. None of, that was not even on our minds as we were coming here. And yet that's a reality of, of many people even today as they would have gathered or attempted to gather. We pray for these brothers and sisters in distant lands that you would bear them up, that they would be fearless and that they would be faithful to you whatever the consequences. And, and may, might you use this, Lord, uh, to bring great gospel advancement in these nations, that these wicked governments uh, that seek to oppress through a heavy hand that that actual oppression, that work of Satan is used to, in many ways, bud out and and explode the gospel's effectiveness in these lands. So we pray for great revival and advance of your kingdom uh, through uh, the suffering of your saints. We pray for us in more safer lands, Guard us from the temptations of our own culture that sucks us into its way of life and affluence and self-trust and pride. Might we be rich in faith and in good works towards others. In Jesus' name, amen.